Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Dan McGowan, in Fred Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Imagine studying science or math in a different language. Many English learners in Rhode Island's public schools face this challenge every day, and their numbers are growing. What is the state doing to help these students succeed? Reporter Michelle San Miguel explored this topic for a segment on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. She's here with Providence School Board President Erlen Rogel. Welcome, Michelle and Erlen. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Dan. Michelle, let, let's set this up a little bit. Uh, you did an excellent story earlier this year on the rise in, in multilingual learners in Rhode Island, 76% over the course of 10 years. Tell us what that means for the state and what you found in your reporting. I think it's important to stress that at a time when we're seeing the student population in Rhode Island, specifically the number of students in public schools, has gone down significantly. Multilingual learners are a segment of the population that's growing rapidly. This is the fastest growing student body in Rhode Island. And so we really wanted to learn more about where are these students coming from, what's driving this increase, and the challenges that both students and educators are facing. So we decided to go to a charter school in downtown Providence, commonly known as TAPA, the Trinity Academy for the Performing Arts. We felt that that school was really reflective of what's happening in the state. I mean, there, one in four students is learning English, which is, I mean, that mirrors a lot of what we're seeing not just in the urban core. I mean, we're seeing this increase in communities that you might not think, North Providence, Cumberland, Newport. And so there were several things that were interesting to me when I was at TAPA. One is that I think there's this misconception that students who are learning English, commonly called MLLs, are being pulled out of their class for most of the day to learn the language when that's not the case. For the most part, they're in the class with the main teacher. You'll have um, an MLL you know, coordinator in there with them, helping them to understand the material. But the idea is if we're pulling students out for most of the day, then they're missing the core instruction, which is math, science, social studies. So yes, they are being pulled out for a fraction of the day. For the most part, they're in their class. Something else that was noteworthy to me was how many teachers are going above and beyond? They don't need to be translating the material. They're not really getting paid to do this on the side. And yet many of them feel that it's important to be translating the text because in this school, for instance, the main home language of these students is Spanish. And so I spoke to a teacher who said, you know, I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I rely on teachers who speak more Spanish. And they're helping me translate this because how can I be teaching in front of all these students and not have them understand what I'm teaching. I mean, it seems common sense, but it's important to him. I loved that part of your story. Uh, I believe it was, was his name, Michael McQuiggan. Exactly, and, yeah. And the work that he does, he looks nothing like the students, right, that, that yeah. he's teaching. And, you know, kind of has this, like, old school teacher look to him. He's kind of got wild hair and stuff like that. And then you see him, you know, with a PowerPoint presentation, you know, both with English and Spanish. And it was so nice to connect that because I think you're right. People don't necessarily understand 
and that this isn't separating, it's not segregating kids. Kids are learning alongside the students who have you know, spoke English their entire lives. That's right. They're learning alongside native English speakers. One of the things that I think, Dan, is really important to talk about is how many students who I spoke with who said to me, Michelle, one of the main reasons I came to TAPA is because of negative experiences that I had at other schools, specifically in Providence. There was a 14-year-old boy named Iverson who was from the Dominican Republic. He left um, his home country in 2020, and he told me that he had a teacher at another public middle school in Providence who repeatedly yelled at him for not speaking English. And he said this teacher, you know, at one point said, Iverson, you've been in my classroom for two to three months. Why don't you speak English? There was another student whose name is Sophia. She's 13. One guy told me that, go back, go back to your country. I was like, what did... One of the reasons we're seeing students leave their home districts is because of the stigma they're facing, the stereotypes that you hear, not just from their peers, um, but also from educators. And I spoke with the Education Commissioner Angelica Infante Green about this, and she said it's twofold. It's one, teachers need to understand, look, it takes more than a few months to learn another language, but also there needs to be sensitivity training. We don't talk to students that way. Yeah, Erlen, I want to pull you in here. You are uniquely experienced for this discussion. You grew up in Providence, went to Providence Public Schools. You've taught in Providence uh, Middle School, toughest age to teach. Uh, you're now the, pre the president of the Providence School Board. Uh, before we talk about your experience specifically, though, I I'd love you to respond to what Michelle was just talking about. It must be alarming to hear the story of any kid who says they didn't have a great experience in the traditional public schools and they felt they needed to go to a charter school or let's say a private school because they, they didn't feel like they were getting either the education they deserve or the treatment they deserve. Absolutely, Dan. I mean, that's a heartbreaking story, Michelle. And honestly, um, I'm saddened to say it's not one that surprises me. Just my experience over the past year and some change um, sitting on the Providence School Board, we have had to listen to disciplinary matters that involves uh, educators being insensitive, being in culturally insensitive to students. So it's heartbreaking. It's definitely something that we as a district need to get better at. Sensitivity training is something that I definitely think should be implemented. We as a board would be fully supportive of an initiative like that. Let's go back to your teaching experience because I would venture to guess that the younger students are, the easier it is to teach kids who are learning English. But as you start to get into middle school, now we're talking a whole other set of issues, right? You're growing up, puberty, it's, it's difficult no matter who you are, let alone if maybe you're coming here and you know, you're, you're, you've only been in the country for a little while. Tell me a little bit about your experience at Gilbert Stewart as a teacher. I didn't follow the traditional educator route. I went to law school, graduated from there, and then enrolled in Teach for America. I didn't, I didn't take the bar. I wanted to go back to my community and serve it the best way I could. Um, and the route that I chose was teaching. I actually ended up at Gilbert Stewart Middle School, which is the same middle school that I attended as a youth. I was able to get my teaching certificate through a couple of courses at Rick, and then I was thrown into a classroom in front of 25 bright-eyed students. And the students' time in the U.S. you know, ran the spectrum. There were some students who had just arrived there a couple of months ago. There were some students who had been in our school district since kindergarten and, had, and were still in ELL services. And middle school was definitely a challenging time for our students. What I will say is that I think I had a couple of advantages working for me, you know, being from the community 
being able to speak Spanish and being able to engage their families directly was immensely helpful as I navigated those three years that I taught there. Yeah, something I know about you that you committed to tremendously was making sure you were in touch with families a lot. You talked to a lot of parents. You did a lot of parent-teacher conferences. Tell me about why that was so important, other than the obvious that parents should know what their students are doing. I mean, family engagement and family input is critical, Dan. And, you know, it's not, my, it's not just me sharing that anecdotally. Data suggests the same. In my case... Being in front of a a classroom full of students can tend to feel like an island. It can tend to feel like a silo. Me being the only adult, students try to push the boundaries a lot, not just in mischievous ways, but in their effort in school, their prioritizing of education, their desire to, you know, want to learn and and gain skills. Um, And so being in touch with families was incredibly helpful because, one, I feel like a lot of family members don't know how to engage their schools. So me being proactive about that, inviting them into the dialogue was extremely helpful because they helped reinforce some of the culture that I was trying to build in my classroom at home. What was the kind of work that you did with other teachers? Because I know there's always the friction around around Teach for America teachers and and you know traditional teachers, but you are also a young, relatively young teacher who the students, I think, from everything I understand, really liked you. Culturally, you sort of got the kids in lots of different ways. What kind of advice were you able to give to maybe an older teacher who knew they wanted to get to students, but maybe just quite frankly didn't know how? What's interesting is, is that my time at Gilbert Stewart, when I returned as a teacher, having been a student there, there were still teachers teaching there that were my teachers (laughs) um, back in the day. And so that dialogue, that relationship was was often a two-way street. I would help them with family engagement ideas. I I would hop on the phone and help translate some of the messages that these teachers wanted to relate to families, but couldn't necessarily say in their language. So I would help in that way. And then from older teachers, I got a lot of mentorship. I got a lot of, hey, like this, these skills, these English development skills really help, uh, really work for me. These lesson plans were really helpful for my students. Again, my background wasn't in teaching. So the pedagogy of teaching, the science of teaching was something that I needed support with. And I had a lot of mentor teachers at Gilbert Stewart. In some ways, those teachers could teach you how to be a teacher and you could teach them to connect with students. Absolutely. Um, and connecting with students, again, I, it's not something I don't think gets taught at Rick or any of these teacher curriculums um, that these colleges offer. My ability to connect students, fortunately for me, came organically. Dressed like them, listened to the same music as them, grew up in the same neighborhood as them. So, you know, it was extremely helpful. Erlen, I know one of the challenges facing the state right now in Providence as well is that we have so few teachers who are qualified to work with MLLs. Only about 5% of public school teachers are qualified to do that statewide. And so I asked Commissioner Infante Green about that, and she said in Providence specifically, they have been incentivizing teachers by offering them about $8,000 to go get this certification, also offering them bonuses. And I'm curious what you're hearing from teachers. Is there a resistance to get this certification? So the incentive is a great thing. However, what I would say is put yourself in the shoes of a teacher who's been teaching, let's say, like a decade. And that notion to have to disrupt your life to go back to school can be a difficult decision to make. Um, The incentive is great. I think we should consider and explore the feasibility of making it completely free, covering the entire cost of getting your ELL certification, um, because that's how desperately we need these educators to get ELL certified. Um, It's not the end-all, be-all. Again, we just discussed, you know, 
cultural sensitivity training. However, you know, having that type of uh, certification in your back pocket can only pay dividends to our students. And we know Governor McKee's proposed budget includes about $16.6 million extra for, for multilingual learners. Erlen, will that make a dent? I mean, what, what will that money go to and, and how much of a difference will it make? I'm extremely grateful for that increase in contribution in the governor's proposed budget. There's a lot of dialogue happening right now around how MLL's uh, education is funded through our state. You know, states like Massachusetts and Connecticut include MLL funding in their core foundational funding. They spend $1,000 more per MLL student than Rhode Island does, putting us behind the pack. Obviously, right now we're dealing with dire financial straits as federal relief money dries up. However, I think we should be on a path. And I believe that's those are the conversations that are being had at the State House to get us to a place where MLL funding is included in the foundational formula. We'll have more of our conversation with Providence School Board President Erlen Rogel and Michelle San Miguel after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Michelle, and I'm guilty of this, but we always frame the multilingual learner challenge challenge as a challenge, as a problem because of money, because it's expensive and and because change is happening and there's going to need to be more certified teachers. But it's also a huge opportunity for the state, certainly for Providence. I mean, this is our future workforce in a lot of ways. What did you learn about sort of the, the positive end of this story? Yeah, absolutely. I think too often it's it's perceived as a deficit. And that's one of the things that educators were stressing to me is that we need to stop looking at MLLs through a deficit lens and instead acknowledging very much we live in a globalized world, right? Like we're, we're trying to retain people to stay in Rhode Island. And so one way to do it is looking at like, well, who's coming here, right? And these are students, not only who speak Spanish, who speak Mandarin, who speak Portuguese. I mean, it's, you know, more than 100 different languages. And, you know, Commissioner Green, um, Infante Green, points to the RICAST test scores, which, which showed students who exited an MLL program in the past three years, they're performing better than the state as a whole in English language arts, and they're neck and neck in math with the statewide average. So her point is, look, when given the opportunity to compete against other students who only speak English, they're outperforming these students. So let's not count them out. I mean, you know, don't, again, don't expect them to learn the language within even a year or two. But once they do, I mean, they're going to do great. Now, speaking of test scores, Erlen, you're a classical high school graduate. We know based on the test scores that the state dinged classical in a lot of ways from, from a four-star high school. And really, let's be honest, classical is one of the three or four best high schools in Rhode Island, no matter any metric. But now it's a two-star school, um, and it's specific to multilingual learners. Why is classical struggling so much to uh, bring those students along? I mean, they got into school the same way as everybody else. So why, why aren't they, you know, making the grade when it comes to uh, on the PSAT and the SAT? Prior to this year, classical didn't have enough MLL students to even be categorized, to even be graded under MLL support services um, in the accountability ratings. They finally crossed that threshold. And honestly, the data shows us that there's work to be done. 
And I have no doubt the principal bar, that central office, and the superintendent are going to make every effort to ensure that classical, as well as every other school in this district, is providing the necessary supports to help MLL students succeed. The fact that classical is now accepting MLL students in greater numbers, the fact that the entrance exam is now going to be given in numerous different languages is a great development. Um, and it's something that we should be celebrating while simultaneously ensuring that the services that MLL students are receiving in that institution are high quality. I want to ask you about school board stuff specifically, uh, not necessarily MLLs. For many years, the school board has been an advisory role. People think that's just the takeover. The school board's been advisory for a really long time. And when you're mayoral appointed, that's kind of how it works. But it does seem, and most recently the example would be the decision to close 360 High School, but there's been a lot of these decisions that it seems like a decision gets made from Commissioner Infante Green, and then the school board holds a hearing after the fact. That's not advisory. That's, hey, can you hold this meeting so that people can come and yell at you? I'm curious, is that the right way to be kind of running the school board? More importantly, is it the right way for the Rhode Island Department of Education and the Providence School Department to be treating the school board? So I will say this, Dan. I mean, at our most recent school board meeting, we did listen to community members regarding the closure of 360, and we had four and a half hours of testimony. And that's one of the roles that the school board plays, despite it being in an advisory capacity only, um, is to provide a forum, to provide a stage for these community members to amplify their voice. Because absent us, there isn't really another forum or another panel that they can go before and speak directly about their district. So we're happy to play that role. Regarding the closure of schools, I definitely think that we have work to do regarding the process. As you've described, what appears like to me is that decisions are made, and then there's this rollout plan to try to get buy-in afterwards. I think it would be beneficial for everyone, community members, for Ride even, for the folks sitting around that table making that decision to get input first. Bring people along with you. I'm not a subject matter expert in education policy or anything like that, so I'm not questioning the why they're doing things. But I do question the how. The city is about to move to a uh, dramatically different school board. You're going to have a partially elected school board, five uh, elected, five appointed. Did you vote for the, the partially elected school board? I did. I think it's a great thing to encourage civic participation amongst our community members. There are folks who may not have found out about the school board recruiting new members. Having an election will definitely bring more attention to the importance of these seats. And my hope is that it would encourage someone who wouldn't normally go through the whole application process and getting nominated and then confirmed to put their name in the ring, throw their hat in the arena and try to assume one of these seats. Which, of course, begs the question, would you ever run for the school board as opposed to just being appointed? I've learned from many folks in power, never say never. I'm very happy right now serving in my role as an appointed school board member. I'm very happy to be working alongside the Providence City Council and the mayor's office, um, as well as RIDE and PPSD, to help in any way that I can to uh, achieve progress for our students. Last question for you. There will come a time, we don't know when, that this, the city will take back control of the schools. Do you have a timeline for when you'd like to see that happen? I have no timeline confirmed, Dan. And honestly, the mayor said this, and I agree, which is, you know, the how it happens and the why it happens is more important than the when. We want to make sure that when the school district gets returned to local control, that we have the proper systems, that we have the proper levers in place to ensure that we continue the things that worked on the state intervention and that we fix the things that didn't work during the intervention and weren't working prior to the intervention. Um, so it's extremely important that we plan meticulously for that moment. Michelle, Erlen, thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you, Dan. You. Thank you, Michelle.
You can watch the Rhode Island PBS weekly segment on multilanguage learners at ripbs.org. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, do us a favor and text it to a friend. I'm Dan McGowan. Ed will be back next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.